I don't think I need to tell many of you this morning as we start that what we have been singing to this morning, professing with our mouth and corroborating with, I hope, our hearts and our spirits, is not, first of all, a theological proposition. I'm speaking, of course, of the resurrection. That Jesus rose from the dead is not, first of all, a doctrine. It's not, first of all, a theology. It's not, first of all, an idea. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, first of all, a historical fact. The resurrection of Jesus is, first of all, uh, in, uh, uh, concerned about whether a man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and was buried. That is to say, his heartbeat stopped, his brainwave ceased activity, he was clinically dead. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is first and foremost about. It is about whether that same Jesus of Nazareth, who was clinically dead and buried, physically, bodily, rose from the dead. He went from dead to alive in a moment. And that he did so on the third day after he died, just like he said he would. We here at Straight Gate Church, as we try to take the Bible seriously, we stand on the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. This happened just like Jesus said it would, and just like the message of the early church was and continues to be for the last 2,000 years. Jesus of Nazareth physically, historically rose from the dead. Now, whenever you make a claim about history, it's either true or false. When we claim as a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was dead and became alive again, that's either true or it's false. And certainly, the history of the Christian church has been to say that that claim is true. But do you know that there are other people who have said that claim, of course, is false? There are people who would tell you today, Jesus of Nazareth did not rise from the dead. And the opponents of that claim went back to the very earliest days of the church. One of the central opponents of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the earliest days of the church were the Jewish leaders, and they had a separate claim about Jesus. They said, no, 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 Jesus has not been physically raised from the dead. He is still dead. His body was stolen. His disciples went into the tomb where he was. They took his body out. They hid it or disposed of it somewhere. And they said, aha, look, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. But it is a lie. Or what you would say more commonly and accurately, it is a fraud. They are claiming him to be alive when they know full well that they stole his body, and that is the basis for his resurrection. My simple point and premise for you today is that factual claim, that historical claim about what happened to the body of Jesus Christ is an intensely relevant and practical question for you to answer 
and for me to answer, particularly on this Resurrection Sunday. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth died, was clinically dead, and was miraculously raised from the dead on the third day, just like he said? Are you here in doubt over that question? You don't know one way or another. You would like to learn more, but you cannot say conclusively one way or the other. Or are you of those who would say, I disbelieve that fact. I do not believe as a historical matter, Jesus was resurrected from the dead on Easter Sunday. What I want to do this morning as I challenge us to grapple with that question is not to look first at the words of Jesus' friends who have been seeking for 2,000 years to prove that he was resurrected from the dead and is living eternally right now. I want to use the words and the actions of his enemies I want to use those words and actions to try to convince you today to ground your faith that Jesus actually did rise from the dead on the third day, just like he said. And then close with some applications for how that truth should shape our lives, not just today on Easter Sunday, but on every day of our lives for how many ever we may live. The title of the message this morning is A Sealed Tomb, A Supreme King. A Sealed Tomb, A Supreme King. And I want us to start in Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bibles with us this morning, whether that's in hard copy form, whether that's in digital or online form on your phone or tablet or wherever it is, I invite you to open your scripture with us and look at what Jesus' enemies had to say about him and what they did leading up to his resurrection. Let's start in verse number 57, shall we? When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate, that was the governor, the Roman governor over the territory, and begged the body of Jesus. He requested it. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. So what has happened? Jesus has been hanged on a cross. He has died. And his body needs to be disposed of. Now, there were two ways that the Romans would often deal with people who had been crucified. One way was that they would be left on the cross and the birds would eat them. Their flesh would be plucked away and wild animals would feed on them. Now, you can imagine why this would be true. Because the very purpose of crucifixion was to be shameful. It was to be public. It was to be a spectacle. The person was hanging on a cross and all of society was supposed to look at them and say, I don't want to be like them. And so allowing that shamed criminal to hang on the cross and have their body eaten by wild animals would just have been another message. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. Don't do what he did. But that didn't happen here. What was another way that the Romans would dispose of a body? They would take it out. You, this is just natural. You can think of this. They would take the, the, the criminal off the cross, and they would throw him in a pit. 
they would throw him in a pile of bodies. Now, remember, this was a common punishment of Jesus' day. Thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people, had been crucified. This wouldn't have been a shocking spectacle anymore. So you can imagine where these bodies would have been disposed. Take the guy off the cross, drop him in a pile, a pit, with a whole bunch of other condemned criminals. But this isn't what happened here. What happened? Jesus had a disciple. He was a secret disciple. Why? Because he was a member of the special Jewish legislature called the Sanhedrin. He was a wealthy man. He was an important man, a connected man. He believed in Jesus, but he did not dare speak about him because he might lose his position. Do you know, friends, all over this country here today, there are people like Joseph of Arimathea, They are wealthy, they are connected, they are popular. And so do you know what they won't risk doing? They won't risk identifying with Jesus of Nazareth too closely because they don't want to lose what they have. That's a sad position to be in. But thankfully, when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea decided to come forward. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor who had ordered Jesus to be crucified, and he said, can I have his body? Now, can you imagine Pilate? Why do you want his body? He's a condemned criminal. He's dead. Well, for whatever reason, well, we know why, because God was doing something. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah, when after he was killed, would be buried with the wealthy. He would have a special set-apart burial. And God was orchestrating all these circumstances to fulfill what had been prophesied of Jesus hundreds of years before. And so Joseph goes to the governor and says, can I have his body? And Pilate says, sure, why not? That's in the Greek. You just, it's not in our, it's not in our King James translation, okay? No, he says, commands the body to be delivered. And notice verse 59. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Joseph, as a rich man, had a cave. He had carved out the cave himself. There was only one door into this cave. It was almost certainly going to be his own burial place, his own special sepulcher. This was not something they they dug a hole and dropped him in. This was a cave with a stone rolled up to it, a very large stone. This was how wealthy people were buried. And now Jesus is wrapped, prepared, For his burial, he's placed in this tomb. Now, notice what happens next. Verse 62, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees, who are these? These are the Jewish religious leaders. We've been looking in our study at Mark. They hate Jesus. They are his sworn enemies because of his popularity and their envy. The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Now stop there for a moment. They had heard him say that. In fact, you could go back to Matthew chapter 12 when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want to get a sign. We want to get some kind of miraculous proof that you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm only going to give you one sign. 
It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to Jonah? You remember Jonah swallowed up in the belly of the great fish and three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and he emerged from that fish. He was thrown up onto the dry land. God's prophet being treated in that way. Jesus said, that's the sign that you're gonna get. I'm gonna be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. They knew that he was testifying that he might be resurrected. And so they were nervous about this. They come to Pilate, the same Roman governor, and look at what they said in verse 64. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure that it be secured until the third day. Why? Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. What were they concerned about? Were the chief religious leaders of the Jews concerned that Jesus might rise from the dead? No, they weren't. What were they concerned about? Fraud. Fraud. What kind of fraud? His disciples getting up the courage to sneak into this rich man's tomb, roll away the massively heavy stone, steal the body out, and then go to all the people and say, you remember how he said he'd be resurrected? Look at the tomb. He's gone. He's resurrected. And therefore, join our church. Follow us become followers of Jesus. And these religious leaders says, we, we can't tolerate that. Notice the words that they say. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Now, maybe that doesn't immediately click what that means. The last error. Well, to understand it, you need to understand what's really being said here. That word error, when we use it today, we kind of think about it maybe like a whoops, a mistake, that's not really what's being communicated here. That word error is the cousin word in the Greek. It's very closely connected to the word that they used when they said that deceiver. In other words, if I would put it in just our plainest modern English today, I would say that deceiver might give rise to another deception. That word error has the idea of deception, not of a mistake. Whoops. Or you might say that fraudster might give rise to another fraud. That liar might give rise to another lie. That's the idea. Now, do you see what they're saying? They understood something centrally about who Jesus was. They said if his claims are confirmed then that's bad news. Now, do you know it's absolutely true? It's one thing to make a claim about something. It's an entirely different thing altogether to have the claim confirmed or proven. It's one thing anyone can get up and say, I'm God. Anyone can get up and say, I'm going to live forever and be your judge one day. Anyone can get up and say, I'm the chosen one of God to give forgiveness of sins. But it's another thing for that person to prove it. You see, what they were concerned about is they knew what Jesus had claimed to be, the Messiah, the chosen one of God to give forgiveness of your sins and my sins, the one who would be the judge of all of us one day that all of us will stand before and give account to one day. 
They said, well, that's bad enough. That kind of deception is bad enough. But do you know what would even be worse? If everyone thought he proved it because his disciples stole the body and tricked us. Our first point this morning is simply to say this. The enemies of Jesus Christ testified to the significance of the resurrection. The significance of the empty tomb. Do you know what the Pharisees understood? If there's an empty tomb, we're in trouble. If there's an empty tomb, there might be a great deception that a lot of people are going to follow that Jesus of Nazareth. So we can't let it happen. I want to be very straightforward for all of us this morning, friends. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was either the greatest historical fact in human history, or it was the greatest fraud that has ever been perpetrated on man. You can't have it any other way than that. It was either the greatest historical fact, or it was the greatest fraud of people who said Jesus of Nazareth is alive and we've seen him with our own two eyes and they were true or they were liars, they were deceivers and they have defrauded everyone who, who has confessed to follow the name of Jesus Christ. Do you know who also understood this? A man named Paul. The Apostle Paul, the one who was one of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever known. Would you hold your, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 27 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to show how Paul reasons about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as something that actually happened. Look what he says in verse number 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. He said, if resurrections aren't aren't a principle that happen, if we have no hope of being resurrected, that means Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. And verse 14, he says, and if Christ be not risen, if he's not risen from the dead, then is our preaching vain. It's empty, it's useless, and your faith is also vain. He said, what you believe is worthless. Do you know if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, what you believe today is worthless? It's empty. It has no value. Look what he says in verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. What was Paul saying? He said, if Jesus didn't rise, then I'm a liar. I've been going around telling people that Jesus is risen from the dead. Friends, how many times have I gotten up in this pulpit and testified that Jesus is alive? If he didn't rise, then another sermon should never be preached from this pulpit. Another meeting should never happen in this church building. What we believe is useless. It's worthless. It has no value if Jesus didn't historically, bodily rise from the dead. Look at he goes on. For if the dead rise not, verse 16, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. You say, what does that mean? If Jesus didn't rise, then you have, your sins aren't forgiven if you're trusting in Christ. You say, why? 
Because the Bible says that your forgiveness of sins from Jesus dying on the cross is only valid if God accepted his death by raising him from the dead. Scripture says that our our ultimate forgiveness, we are saved to the uttermost, to the entire extent of our sins for eternity because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then your sins haven't been forgiven and you aren't right with God. Notice verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, he means those which have died in Christ, are perished. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your loved ones who trusted in Christ are gone forever. They've perished if Jesus didn't rise. That's what he's talking about, the historical fact of the resurrection. Keep on going. He says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The ideas of people who should be pitied. Now you say, why? Because Paul gave his entire life to go tell other people that Jesus had risen from the dead and he suffered greatly for it. And I look around this room at people who have given of their money, they have given of their time, they have given of their energy and their resources to tell people that Jesus has risen from the dead. And if that's not true, pity us. Pity us. We've wasted our money, we've wasted our time. We've wasted our life. Friend, are you ready to come into the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That if this was a fraud that was perpetrated on mankind, your sins are not forgiven, your loved ones are perished forever, and you will too, and you've wasted your life and your money and your time. Are you ready to embrace that? I am. Do you know why? Because it wasn't a fraud. Because it wasn't a lie. Because it wasn't a deception. Because the testimony, the actions of Jesus' enemies show its truth. Go back to Matthew chapter 27. And let's look at not only the actions, the words of Jesus' enemies testify to the significance of the empty tomb, but let's notice, secondly, how they testify to the security of the empty tomb. The security of the tomb. Go down to verse number 64. The enemies of Jesus have gone to the governor, and they say, command that the sepulcher, that tomb, be made sure, secure, until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. Go down to verse 65. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch, you have a guard. Go your way, make it as sure as you can, as secure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Those two last phrases, sealing the stone and setting a watch. What does that mean? The first thing it means is they had a guard of soldiers. It could have been four where two of them would be on guard and two of them would be resting and then they would switch. That would not be necessarily an uncommon arrangement. Who who was this guard? 
We actually don't know whether this guard was Roman soldiers, and that's why they were going to Pilate. Pilate, give us Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers, or whether it was the Jewish temple guard. Some people say it must have been the Jewish temple guard because later they came back to the, to the chief priests after the resurrection, not directly to Pilate. I think it was probably a Roman guard. That's why they came to Pilate in the same way that they came here. But whatever it is, they had soldiers on duty. Not only that, they sealed the stone. What does that mean? To seal the stone is like putting up tape around a crime scene. Have you ever walked past an area of town and there's yellow tape? Warning, caution, stay out. Why? Because the police have there and they said no one else can come in here. This is a crime scene. We're not letting anyone else in. And they seal it. That was the same kind of idea. They took rope and they put it across the door of the tomb. Around that stone, that big stone that was blocking the entrance so wild animals couldn't get in and prey on the body. The stone was, uh, the, the tomb was secured by a stone. It was rope and you had wax or clay on either side so that if it would be torn away, they'd see this seal has been broken. A Roman guard of soldiers, a seal of the stone so that no one could get in. You say, why does that matter? It matters really significantly when you understand what Jesus' disciples, or I'm sorry, what Jesus' enemies had to say after the resurrection. Turn over to chapter 28, one chapter over in our Bibles, and look with me at verse number 11. The Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead and it was combined with an earthquake that left the soldiers terrified, trembling, scared, and they looked in the tomb. They must have been seen that he was gone. And they realized they were in huge trouble because it was their job to guard him. It was their job not to let anyone in, and now he's gone. And what happens? Look at verse number 11. Now, when they were going, those were the disciples to tell people, the women to tell people that Jesus was alive. Behold, some of the watch, that's the guard, came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. They gave a big sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Say ye, now listen to this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. While we slept, they snuck in and stole his body. And if this come to the governor's ears, that's Pilate, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day until the day that epistle was written. Now, what happened? These soldiers come back to the chief priests who told them to go guard, and they said, this is what happened. There was an earthquake. There was a trembling of the earth, and the, the guy's gone. He's not in there anymore. What should we do? And they said this. We're going to pay you off, and you tell everyone that you fell asleep. And I know this might get you in trouble with Pilate, because if you fall asleep on duty, you might die. But don't worry, because we're going to go tell Pilate, if this becomes an issue, don't worry about it, Pilate, and we might even bribe him. Say his disciples stole his body. That's the fraud, 
right? Now, friends, was this just something that the early writers of Christianity like Matthew were making up? No. Do you know this is exactly what the Jews argued about Jesus in the early days of the church? Do you know what their response was to people going around the world and saying Jesus is alive? They said, no, it's a lie. His disciples stole his body. In fact, we see this in the works of a man named Justin Martyr. He was an early apologist in the second century of the church, a man used to debating with the Jews about who Jesus was and what happened to him. And in the words of the Jews, he writes this down of what their dispute was. He says this, His disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Matthew said, do you want to know what other people say, how G, what, what happened to the empty tomb? They say, we stole the body. Justin Martyr says in his day, do you want to know what the Jews are saying about how Jesus was resurrected? They say, we stole his body. Now let me ask you this, my friends. What is reasonable to you? Is it reasonable to you that the disciples of Jesus Christ who were so shaken by Christ's arrest and his death that one of them denied him entirely, that virtually every one of them fled and ran off, and that the only one who wanted to fight was so bad with a sword that when he tried to split someone down the middle, he missed so badly he only got a piece of his ear. Do you find it reasonable that those same men were the ones who went to try to take on a Roman guard of soldiers on the night before he was resurrected. Do you think that's reasonable? That those disciples, scared of their own shadow, said, I've got an idea. I'm going to go see if I can sneak by those Roman soldiers and steal his body. Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable that those same men who would allegedly have stolen the body of Jesus were willing to die for what they said was true? Is it reasonable that those same men were the ones who were put at sword point for Jesus Christ and say, deny Jesus? And they said, I cannot because I've seen him alive. Do you think that if they were lying, that if they knew that they had stolen his body and robbed the tomb and that's why they were saying it, do you think they would base their life on it? No. People don't die for what they know to be a lie. They don't do that. What is the reasonable explanation? The reasonable explanation is that the disciples of Jesus were willing to die for what they were proclaiming because they had seen the, the living Christ with their own eyes. They had heard or seen themselves the testimony of the empty tomb. Friends, do you see in all of this, the Jews did not dispute that the tomb was empty? They didn't say, oh no, you, you went to the wrong tomb. He's over in this one. They knew the tomb was empty because they knew Joseph. They knew where his tomb was. They knew who he was. At any point, any one of them could have walked right over to his tomb and said, there's a body in there. You're all wrong talking about the resurrection. But they didn't because they couldn't. And because they knew the tomb was empty, the only thing they could say is someone must have stolen him. But do you know why that was not persuasive? Because before he died, they convinced the Roman governor to put a watch of Roman soldiers on guard. 
This was God himself working through the testimony of the enemies of Jesus Christ to give us proof, to give us evidence that there was an empty tomb. And the most miraculous, the most reasonable evidence we have is that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead just like he said. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that and 2,000 years ago, Jesus physically rose from the dead. There's an empty tomb just like there has always been. And he is alive. He is coming back one day to be our judge. We will stand before him and give account of what we have done in our lives. Friends, if it is true that the enemies of Christ testify to the significance of the empty tomb, if they testify to the security of the empty tomb, that means finally they testify to the supremacy of the occupant of the tomb. The enemies of Jesus Christ testify that Jesus Christ is the supreme king over all. Because humanity did everything they could to keep him in that tomb. Humanity set a Roman guard outside. Humanity set a seal of a rope across that tomb. Humanity did everything possible to protect against anyone getting into the tomb. But what humanity could not do was stop the person inside from coming out of the tomb. They could keep people from coming in. They couldn't keep him from coming out. And the glorious truth about Jesus Christ is that humanity has never been able to keep him down. Humanity has never been able to keep him in the tomb. Humanity has never been able to keep him hidden from the world because he is the supreme king, because he is the one who has authority over death, because he rose from the dead. He will not be kept down today. He will not be held silent and quiet and tucked away in corners. He demands to be king. He demands to be king over you and over me. He stands before us and says, I am the risen Lord who has conquered death, who has conquered hell, who has conquered all the powers of the Roman government and every other government. Bow the knee before me because I am king. I have been declared to be king by the resurrection from the dead. Friends, let's go back to what we said about the resurrection. What is at stake in that empty tomb? The first thing is that's at stake is the forgiveness of our sins. Because we can be assured that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead, that means, friends, that today your sins can be forgiven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means there is no sin that the devil can hold over your head or anyone else can that is too severe for you to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That means because a perfect son of God died on the cross in your place, taking your sin on himself, you can come to him and find your entire forgiveness and a relationship with God that you have never known. We have that assurance because Jesus rose from the dead. Friend, have your sins been forgiven today? Do you have a relationship with God by Jesus Christ that has been secured by his resurrection from the dead? What was the second thing that we said was at stake in that empty tomb? 
It was that those who you have loved and have gone on have not perished forever. They have not perished forever because Jesus didn't perish forever. Because he rose from the dead, they will rise from the dead in Christ. And because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. You will. There's a wonderful old gospel song. Ain't no grave gonna keep my body down. Ain't no grave gonna keep my body down. When that trumpet gonna sound, This body is going to come up out of the ground. Ain't no grave going to keep my body down. Is that your confidence this morning? Is that your confidence for the ones that you have loved and lost who were in Jesus Christ? Ain't no grave going to keep their body down either. What's the third thing at stake in this empty tomb? What is it? It's that your life and my life isn't needing to be pitied. We're not miserable. Do you see what the resurrection is doing? It's liberating you. It's liberating you to live ways that the world calls extreme. They say, why are you in church every Sunday? Why are you telling other people about Jesus? Why are you taking financial risks? Why are you giving money to a church? Why are you living extreme sacrificial lives caring for other people? Why aren't you pursuing money like everyone else? Why aren't you pursuing power like everyone else? You're wasting your life. And the Christian responds, you bet I am. I may be wasting this life, but I'll tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not wasting the life that's to come. Friend, don't pity the person who's giving their life for Jesus Christ. Don't pity the person who's giving up their comfortable life to go to another foreign land and tell people that Jesus is dead, but he's resurrected and he's coming one back, one back one day and your sins can be forgiven. Don't pity that person. Don't pity the person who's living in, la- in poverty because they're pursuing an eternal resurrection in Christ. Don't pity that person. The question is, am I living the way that's fitting to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Am I living like there's an eternity that ain't no grave going to hold this body down because one day I'm going to live with Jesus in eternity? That's what Jesus came to teach us. He said, are you being persecuted on this life for my sake? Rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. It's not here on this life, maybe, but it's in the next one. He said, when you hold a dinner, he said, don't invite the people who can pay you back by inviting you back. Invite the people who can never pay you back. Guess why? Because you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, our entire life is based not on what I'm getting here. My life in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is living for something I can't see now. But by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced that I will see one day. Friend, do you have the forgiveness of sins today because you've trusted in a risen Savior, Jesus Christ? You've put all your eggs in his basket. You're you're depending on him entirely for your eternal life. Do you have confidence today that those who you have loved, who have gone before you in Jesus Christ, are going to be resurrected one day? You're going to see them? Do you have confidence that the way you're living your life for eternal things today is not a waste? 
It's worth it because Jesus rose and therefore you're going to rise too to eternal life. All of these things can be assured to us by the enemies of Christ who did everything they could to keep people from coming into that tomb, but who ultimately could do nothing to keep the one inside the tomb from coming out. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We have confidence, Father, that our lives are not in vain because the one who died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. Father, our faith all comes down to this. It all depends on whether 2,000 years ago, Jesus historically and bodily rose from the dead. And if it's true, if it's true, our entire lives have to change. Father, this fact is worth living for, and I pray that today, oh, I pray that every person in this room would be willing to live for what is coming in eternity, not for what is here in front of us today.